0: like retirement. Now who said that?
1: Welcome to the Dr. Chris Griffin Show, your resource for leveraging systems and technology to ease your workload, increase productivity, and provide you with the time off you deserve to live the life of your dreams. It's time to practice productivity and the passionate pursuit of a better life with your host, Dr. Chris Griffin. The doctor is in.
0: Well, that was a simple one, and I'm not expecting you to get it right, but that was actually said by none other than world-famous running back, Mr. Barry Sanders. Now, if you're a child of the 90s like I am, you might remember Barry as pretty much the entire offense for the Detroit Lions. I mean, that guy was amazing. He was a contemporary of Emmitt Smith. And a lot of people said that he probably would have broken the all-time Russian record if he had stayed in the league. But he just up and retires at the peak of his achievement, and most people think still at the peak of his skill set. I mean, look, if you haven't seen him play, go back and watch the clip. I saw him play first in the Holiday Bowl when he was playing for Oklahoma State. I'd never seen anybody run like him. And when he got to the pros, he pretty much dominated every game that he played in until he retired and apparently according to that quote he enjoyed retirement and a lot of people bugged him about it right so that's probably why that quote is valid so that really plays in well with today's episode because today you guys are in for a treat it's a little experiment that i've sort of come up with so i reached out to several guys who host podcasts besides myself and uh And I thought it would be really neat if we would do like a project, like we'll do a part one on my podcast, part two on their podcast, or vice versa. And so today is the very first one of these. We hope to have several more this season. In fact, I've already taped a few of them. So today's podcast, we're going to be speaking with none other than Mr. Jerry Jones. Now I said Mr. Jerry Jones and not Dr. Jerry Jones. A lot of you guys may think that that Jerry is a doctor because he is so uh, predominant in dental discussions today all across the board. Now, Jerry lives in a state, Oregon, that allows non-dentists to own practices, and he owns a group of practices, which makes him very unique. And I tell him in the interview, man, I don't know how many people realize just how amazing that is that you own practices, you're not a doctor, and yet you're still very, very profitable. I mean, I can't imagine how I could go in and earn a living to the level I want to without being able to pick up a handpiece and do a procedure when I absolutely have to have the money. There have been several times when we needed to do a case, and, you know, I don't love doing some things, but I will do a difficult braces case if I have to, if we need money. I will do a difficult implant case if we have to, if we need the money. But Jerry doesn't have that. He's not afforded that opportunity. He's not afforded that luxury because he's just the owner. He can't go in there and pick up the handpiece or the forceps and make money if the practice needs to make money. So the fact he is so successful right there just sets him apart. But I met Jerry first in Dallas, Texas, and we were at a marketing event. Uh, I believe it was a Dan Kennedy copywriting event. How boring that is if you're not a copywriter. But we were there... And uh, he recognized me, and I uh, we talked a little bit, standing in line to get our picture taken with one of the celebrities there, I believe. And we went into the restaurant, and we uh, he sat down, he interviewed me for his for his monthly audio uh, recordings, which uh, you know I think I still think he does that, which I have given that up long ago, right? I, I, I switched over to the podcast, uh, but I think he's still at it. But we sat there in the restaurant, and he interviewed me on his iPhone. Now he had an iPhone before I had one, and I was amazed you could record someone on this iPhone. I was just bewildered. Uh, And and strangely enough, he gets back to Oregon, and it turns out that he had lost about half of that interview. So we had to get back on the phone and finish the interview, splice it together. But anyway, ever since then, he, he and I have had a great relationship. He invited me to speak at his a big new patient extravaganza in Phoenix, Arizona, several years ago. It was one of my most successful speeches to date. I mean, it was amazing. I spoke on the same stage with Howard Ferran and a lot of other great guys out there. Uh, and so I owe Jerry a lot just for helping me along in my career, just being able to speak to Dennis like you guys. I probably wouldn't be doing this today if not for people like Jerry. So uh, I reached out to him. He's one of the first ones I reached out to and said, hey, let's do this podcast project Because I know you, besides owning practices, he also coaches a lot of dentists. And I've coached a lot of dentists. And one of the things he and I have both talked about, we see a lot every day, are dentists who are reaching out to us saying, look, I'm burnt out. I'm ready to get out of dentistry. What can I do that makes as much money as being a dentist? I I don't think most dentists like the answers we give them. But I thought this would be a great opportunity for he and I just to sit down and chat about What we think, what we've seen, what we've seen work in other people's practices, what we've seen work in other people's lives. So today we're going to talk about what happens after you hang up the drill, after you get out of the operatory, what happens in life after dentistry. So everybody just hang on to your seat and we're going to get right into the interview with Mr. Jerry Jones. Okay, so we are here with Jerry Jones, just like we said, and we're so thankful we were able to squeeze into his very busy schedule, and I do think that Jerry is probably one of the best people to speak to on the topic we're talking about. And so the topic we're talking about today is life after dentistry. When can you safely leave your practice and retire? So uh, Jerry, are you there? I'm here. Good to talk to you, Chris.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Man, well, I'm super excited to have you. I really, uh, I'm looking forward to this because I think that you are probably one of the best people to talk to about this. Well, I think so I know that you. I think I'm the
1: best person to talk to about it. Well,
0: well <laughs> okay, yeah, and then, you know, and I know everybody that follows me. We've done a lot of stuff together over the years, and uh, so we go way back. And I know you've coached a ton of dentists, and I've coached a lot of dentists. And one of the questions they always ask is, when can I get out of practice safely? Because you know they're worried about having enough money to retire and stuff like that. And so um, and I know that you I know you know a lot about this that maybe the average person doesn't. So I'm just gonna jump right in with the interview question. So the first question I've got for you is where do you think that a practice should be, say, in relation to revenue and benchmarks to be able to get enough equity out of it so that the dentist can actually get out, quote-unquote, of dentistry and not have to practice actively again if they don't want to?
1: Well, that's, um, that's the million-dollar question, um, and, it's, and it's, kind of a, um, it's kind of a trick question in a way because um, I, you know, usually when people start with something like that, well, it's sort of a trick question. You wonder, all right, does this guy even know what he's going to be talking about? Um, but it's uh, maybe not a trick question, but a loaded question because there's, it's not a simple answer. Um, if it were a simple answer, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. So what I think we ought to do here, Chris, is kind of dive into what, what does it take to have a dental practice that throws off enough cash so that you don't have to work in it. In other words, you can own it, but you don't have to necessarily be chairside. Now you're going to have to do some work. Let's not pretend that that's not reality. Because you do have to do something, but it just doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, chair-side work. Uh, you follow so far?
0: Yeah, no, okay. I, I get it, I get it.
1: Okay, so um, let's start with, I mean, I, I, I where, where we ought to look at this really is um, where the practice is at right now and what, what the expectation is of a doctor who's looking to escape from chair-side. Uh, and be an owner as opposed to a, you know, strictly chair-side slash owner. Um, So we really got to take a look at um, where that practice is at, what the expectations are of the doctor that wants to step aside and no longer be actively chair-side. And and looking at the practice itself, there's considerations like what are the systems like? Um, What's the patient flow like? Uh, What is the current overhead? So if the practice is doing you know, a million dollars a year in collections, not production, but collections. That's money we can spend. We can't spend production. So if it's collecting $83,000 a month, of that 83,000, how much of that goes to cover overhead? And if we take, you know, we might want to take out the doctor's salary. We may not, just depends on how you want to run the numbers. But there has to be excess profit now in order for a doctor to safely, you know, um, escape from chairside but uh, you know we got to look at uh, profitability we've got to look at systems we've got to look at personal needs so in other words those are really to me the doctor's expectations um, but you know from my own experience in in doing this because Chris this is what I actually do so I have a dental office I'm not chairside because I don't even have a license and I don't even know you know I barely know what a filling is I don't know what a root canal is I seriously don't and I really don't want to know because then I might know something that I can't do anything with the knowledge anyway, so why bother? Um, <clears throat> so having done this for the last 15 years, uh, last month, 15 years and a month, um, I got a pretty good idea of what it takes. And it takes a lot more, I think, than what most dentists might believe. Um, I'll give you an example. So if overhead runs at 85% with doctor salary included, And the doctor says, you know what, if I can just take 10 grand a month out of this practice, I'll be in in fat city. So that 10 grand a month is going to take care of the doctor's personal overhead, if you will, money he needs to survive and eat, pay bills, make his house payment, car payment, whatever it is, uh, medical insurance, all that good stuff. So if the doctor needs 10 grand a month and his practice is running an 85% overhead with his current salary included, Basically, I mean, you got he's making the money now, but he's got to put somebody else in place of him who has the same skills and abilities to generate that same amount of money. Um, so, I mean, the doctor realistically at 85% overhead, he's going to have to do 100 grand collections a month just to take out 10 grand at 85%. Now, some of you at Fast at Math might say, yeah, but Jerry, that's 15 grand. Well, we've got to pay taxes, folks. So 85% overhead, 100 grand a month coming in, $85,000 going to pay the bills and the associate doctor or new partner that's working. There's 15 grand left over. Five grand goes to taxes, miscellaneous BS, and there's your 10 grand that the doctor needs. Now it takes a lot to get there. We, one thing I really haven't even touched on yet, is new patient flow. Um, associates and new partners eat new patients like you and I eat pizza. I mean, they go through them quick. It's like you know, grass through a goose. So you have to have the ability to generate a lot of new patients. Double or triple the number that you're used to seeing yourself in your practice in order to support that new doctor and get them up to speed, if you will. So, I mean, those are just some initial things to consider, Chris. But it's going to boil down to what kind of systems do you have? What kind of people do you have? What's your overhead? What are your personal needs? And then taking a look at those to start with to dive in and get to arrive at a number um, you know, where you're gonna to need to be as far as revenue goes.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I totally, um, I totally get that. So, but you know, you see a lot of guys out there and I've seen it attempted so many times. How many times have you seen something like this? So a dentist has a really good solo practice. And when I say really good, they might be taking home three or $400,000 a year. I don't, it, you know, depends on what their collections are, but th- that's a pretty good income in America. You know, most places that's a pretty good income. But they don't really understand that the second they step away from that same practice, the practice itself is not at all profitable. It's almost like the practice is just giving them a job, because they probably could have gone into a, a good associate arrangement with their skill level, and they might could have made three or four hundred thousand dollars in that arrangement too, right? So the practice, is, yeah, the practice itself is just it's just a vehicle for them to have a job, and um, that kind of deal is not necessarily. A very saleable item because somebody just really can't walk in and step in and and do that immediately right off the bat because like you said if you're used to getting 20 new patients a month there's somebody just walking into that practice especially a young dentist they're not gonna be able to do that amount of production they'll be unhappy they won't make what they want to make and so they'll be unhappy so you have to get creative Uh, I tell you a concept that that I heard years ago Uh, and I'd hate to credit it to any one person because I really don't remember who I heard it from first, but the old retire in practice concept, right? Um, That's a pretty good one for somebody like me who, uh, Lord willing, you know, if the carpal tunnel doesn't get me, I would like to practice pretty much until I pass away. So, I mean, I'm probably just going to slow down gradually and and make income until the practice kind of dries up one day. I really have no intentions on selling right now. Uh, but but for a lot of dentists, I mean, a lot of dentists my age are saying, boy, maybe ten more years, 15 more years and I can quit. I just don't know that they understand what is going to be required for them to be able to quote unquote quit and then also have the income that they want to have once they quit.
1: Yeah, and, and something we haven't really even touched on. I mean, you, you're right, the retirement practice deal is it's been around a while. I've heard um, I've heard doctors talk about that. You know, uh, consultants talk about it for 20, you know, 22, 23 years. Um, and that's as long as I've been in the business, I've heard it, heard it discussed. It, Todd Vogel, a dentist here in Salem, uh, long since retired, um, was really one of the, I think, one of the first people to write a book about it. And if you can find his book, which I doubt you can, but he's got a great book on bringing in partners, um, and he's created a great model for it. And, uh, that goes back a long way. So that's Todd Vogel. Um, but, uh, we haven't really even talked about the skill set that's required to run a business, not have a job. So, I mean, you're, you hit the nail on the head. Solo practice equals job, because if you don't have anybody to take over your business while you're stepping out for vacation, if you don't have somebody that's there working when you're not working, you got a job and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but understand what you have. Don't mislead yourself into thinking that you have a business because you basically you've, you've created a job. So when another solo dentist comes in to buy your practice, they're buying a job, they're not buying a business. Um, and so that's, I think that's an important distinction and something that we ought not ignore. Um, because when you have a business, the skill sets are completely different than just being chair-side. And I don't mean just being, I don't mean that as like, oh, well, that's just chair-side. I don't mean it that way at all, I just mean that that's one, that's one set of skills and then running a business and not being chair-side requires a completely different set of skills leadership development, understanding finance, um, I mean, marketing, Um, we could go on and on. Um, And so it's a different, it's a completely different world running a dental practice as a business as opposed to simply working in it, Um, because you will have to grow that practice beyond where it's at now to support you in any sort of decent lifestyle um, if you are to step away and bring in other dentists to do the work you will have to grow the business and it will then continuously have to grow from there on out. So there's a there's a completely, I think there's a surprise waiting for a lot of folks who believe that, oh, I can just step out and hire an associate and there we go. Um, it's far more complex than that.
0: I think one thing, a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a reason. I know it's not legal in every state. And so, you know, like you are a non-dentist owner. And so, I don't know that everybody realizes for you to earn a profit out of that practice that's darn hard i mean that is that requires a lot of business acumen for you to be able to earn an income and not be a dentist because hey man i mean uh, when it gets tough in my practice all I've got to do is uh, is just suck it up and go do some extractions I might not have wanted to do or a root canal or a couple of implants that I didn't really want to do, but if I need the money, I could do them. Well, you can't really do that, right? So you've got to figure out how to make the profit out of the practice. Uh, it's really impressive. It's really impressive. Um, and I think you almost set your, you set yourself up pretty well for my next question, Jerry. So my next question is, what are some of the mistakes you've seen personally uh, from these dentists that have tried to transition out of active clinical practice, and in your opinion, how could those common mistakes be avoided?
1: Um, I think probably there are two big ones. Um, I think the, there's an underestimation of management skills required, which I sort of alluded to earlier, which to me equals leadership. I mean, there's, so there, there's an assumption that I can just be the same individual I was as a practicing dentist slash owner, now just as an owner and no longer practicing. Um, I think a lot of folks underestimate the, the skill required from understanding and knowing management techniques, understanding what leadership is, and, and continuously, you know, um, sharpening that, that skill as a leader. Um, and I think there's another big surprise that uh, a lot of folks just don't really realize, and that's um, the role that marketing plays in growing a practice, that is not, um, you know, that is not a a personality-based practice or a solo practice, one that you know is owned by one person, um, as opposed to maybe you know two, three, or four doctors. So that marketing skill, the ability to generate patients at will and have them flood your practice uh, and have more new patients than you can handle, that is something that. You know, if a doctor wants to step aside, um, if you don't have the ability to generate new patients at will, if you don't want to understand marketing, you're going to end up paying a company like mine, Jerry Jones Direct, to do that for you. And so it's obviously it's less expensive to do things yourself. So if you're stepping aside and you want to, you know, you want to get a better grip on marketing, then that's something that, you know, you need to go out and train yourself on and get some education. You pay one way or the other. You either pay for the education, or you pay for somebody else to do the work for you. Um, But I think those are two areas, Chris, that are highly underestimated by docs. That uh, uh, and, and they make those mistakes. They dive in and they think this is just like the business I had before, and it's not. And they, you know, they maybe have been surviving on 20 new patients a month for the last two or three years, and they they change the structure of the business. They add another doctor. Maybe they add two doctors. Um, because it may very well take two full-time doctors to replace one full-time solo doc because of the amount of production that that solo doc has become accustomed to generating through their existing patient base. Um, I see that a lot. You know, you'll see a practice, and this almost inevitably happens. When a practice goes through this transition, their production may be, you know, maybe they're hitting 80, 100, 120 grand a month. They make this transition, and it drops down to 70, maybe 60 grand. And they might be there for a couple months until they sort of figure things out. You know, what's wrong? Why are we, why is our income dropped? Why are we not, you know, why are we not selling cases? Why are we not, you know, getting the production we were getting before? Um, And it's usually, you know, from a number of these things that we've outlined here uh, taking place. So um, this isn't a place for someone to go who is not interested in a challenge because it's going to be a different kind of challenge. It's going to be a good challenge. But it's going to be different and it's going to be something that um, I think docs are um, want to mentally prepare for and they want to surround themselves with people who have already done it so that they have uh, reliable coaching if you will um, so that it's not something that they're just you know flying by the seat of their pants and hoping they get it right there's too much on the line to not do this right only one and only do it one time it's just too much on the line I've made so many mistakes, Chris, over the last fifteen years in owning that owning that dental office. That um, I mean, I've written a, I've written more than one book about it. That's for sure.
0: You know, uh, and listen, I don't. I I'm glad when people hire people like you to do their marketing because I mean, you and I met face to face for the first time. We actually met at a marketing conference. You remember that? I do. Yeah, it was in Dallas, Texas. That, Dallas, Texas. Um, dan kennedy was having a conference and you and i you and i both were attendees and so yeah yeah sure it's just like uh, uh you know it's just like there's an old uh, there's a comedy guy from mississippi and one of his old stories he they, they talk about coon hunting you know and and they somebody said well it's not fair you got all these big bloodhound dogs and they've got and one raccoon up in a tree it's just not fair to the raccoon and the and the hunter said well, I don't know what you know. Me and Ferry said if the coon wants to jump out of the tree and whip all the dogs, he's welcome to walk off. And uh, and so it's kind of that way, right? I, I don't, I couldn't tell you. I know you don't know because you're a lot better than me, and I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of hours I have spent at marketing conferences, reading marketing books, testing in my own office, failing a lot of the time, hitting some home runs, trying to reproduce that. And then for a couple of years, I tried to teach marketing as part of my coaching program to dentists. And I can assure you, dentists generally do not have the temperament to learn how to do marketing. They sure don't have the temperament to test something and fail at, fail at it a couple of times before they get it right. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's something I don't think people really recognize is, uh, is the complexity and the effort that goes into running the business and marketing being a huge part of that. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, now, uh, as a lot of people out there may may or may not know Jerry and I decided to do this podcast today as sort of a it's just kind of a serial thing like a mini serial deal so part one here is on my podcast that you're listening to the dr. Chris Griffin show but part two is going to be over at Jerry's show uh, so I'm just just make sure we get this right Jerry if people want to listen to part two of this discussion about, Life after dentistry, and when can you safely leave active practice? Uh, tell them exactly where they can go to listen to part two of this podcast.
1: Yeah, you bet. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, next, uh, The best place to go is jerryjonesdirect.com forward slash podcast. Um, that website will be, you know, it has multiple ways you can listen and how you want to listen. You can also, if you're an iTunes person like me and like you, Chris, uh, go to iTunes and just search for the jerry jones radio show and you'll and it'll pop up um we've got i don't know 50 some episodes or some darn thing on there so um yeah that's uh that's the easiest way to find it jerryjones forward slash podcast or go to itunes and search for the jerry jones radio show
0: Okay man well I hope everybody goes over there and listen to part two and Jerry and I that we're gonna we're gonna head out from this podcast and we're gonna fly through cyberspace and we're gonna jump over to his podcast next okay Well thanks everybody for listening today Jerry you got any parting words for my people? I don't just go get it done. Go get it that's a that's a good tagline Jerry. I like that. Go get it done. All right everybody. we'll see you next time and go over to his podcast and grab part two of this episode. Thanks again.
1: We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Dr. Chris Griffin Show. Be sure to visit drchrisgriffin.com for the latest resources and updates to keep you more productive every single day you're at the practice. So when you're not working, you can do the things that matter most in life. We look forward to having you join us for another episode of the Chris Griffin Show, where the doctor is always in.